This morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, and this morning we'll be considering verses 17 through 29 as the Apostle Paul continues to show us that all men will stand one day condemned before the judgment seat of God or pardoned. And we want to be in that group that's pardoned. And he wants us to understand there are no exceptions to this. As Pastor Craig said last week, no get out of jail card freeze. I doubt if God plays Monopoly anyway. And he concludes this argument in chapter 3, amazingly, and we'll get there, but he'll make such statements as both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, for there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, there is not even one. There is none who understands for Every mouth, he says, will be closed, verse 19, and all the world will stand accountable to God. What's it going to be like in that day when you stand before God and he judges you with perfect judgment? No flesh, it says, will be justified before God by the works of the law, verse 20. Then this argument is crescendoed in chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, for all have sinned and fallen short or miss the mark of the glory and perfection of God. Doesn't sound good for humanity, does it? In fact, it sounds quite awful. No man is sinless, whether Jew or Greek, whether he has the law or not, whether he has undergone the rite of circumcision or not, because we all fall short of the perfection of God. We all fall short of the glory of God in our hearts in our minds, in our actions, and just because we live in a fallen world and are born that way. David says we were conceived in iniquity, brought forth in sin. And Paul continues to advance that argument in Romans chapter 2 and verses 17 through 29. And just to get your hearts and minds acclimated to that, I want to read it as we begin. Then we'll go over it a little more carefully. He says, But if you bear the name Jew, verse 17, and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, speaking of the Jews' relationship to the Gentile in particular, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that we should not commit adultery, commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, though through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is a blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written." For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision, not just an outward fleshly operation. It says, so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, Will he not judge you who, through, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? 
For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but his praise comes from God. Now, after reading that question, it might raise in your own mind, what am I trusting in for eternal life? I've talked to many supposed Christians, and they have all kinds of ideas about what eternal life is. It's interesting to talk to them, and much like the Jew, uh, they give some really unusual answers. Uh, what am I trusting in for eternal life? Like the Jew, am I trusting in my heritage, that I was raised in a Christian home, born in America, that I go to church, that my granddad was a, a preacher man? Is that what I'm trusting in? Uh, or like the Jew who trusts in his ability to keep the law and uh, have a righteousness of his own derived from the law, am I trusting in the fact that I'm uh, uh, basically a nice person, as our society would have us believe, even of murderers, <laughs> rapists, and so on and so forth, but basically a good person and basically good. I've not done any of the big evil ones, sins, you know, so I'm good enough to stand before God and give an account for for my life? Or like the Jew, am I trusting in ritual? In this case, the sign of the circumcision, as we'll talk about later, but in our case, that I was baptized as an infant and uh, took communion after going through catechism and now attend church. And what am I trusting my eternity to? In what? What do you base your eternity on? That's the question and the answer Paul is driving at here, and as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, he's destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. For as Jesus once said as he was departing to his disciples in John 17.3, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent pretty much defined eternal life there. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Pretty much defines what really eternal life is there. And as we look at this passage, I want us to see the failure of heritage to give eternal life. It's not because you were born into a Christian family or that you were a Jew. Uh, I want you to see the failure of law in verses 17 through 24, that nobody keeps the law. The failure of ritual in verses 25 through 27, that it's not ritual that saves us or gives us eternal life. And then finally, what the real heart issue is in, in verses 28 and 29 of eternal life. And it'll be interesting as we go through this. So first of all, look at the failure of heritage to gain eternal life. Look at verse 17. But he says, but if you bear the name Jew, stop right there. Now keep in mind as we get going into this, being Jewish and having the law and being circumcised is all good. It's all good in and of themselves. Those are all great things. But they are not what guarantees a person eternal life. That's Paul's bigger point. Now, the word Jew came from the word Judah, and Judah means to be praised or praised one, or uh, he was given the preeminence among the tribes of Judah, the rulers would the ruler staff would not depart from Judah the scepter 
of the, the king would come from there, and all the great kings were from the tribe of Judah. Now, to the Jew of Paul's day and even today, he wore the name of Jew as a badge of great honor and pride, and rightfully so. They are God's elect and chosen people, although Romans 11.25, when we get there, will tell us that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then it says, and so <coughs> all Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles. And I believe that to be the church. Gentile church is mainly the church today. There are many Jews in the church, but, but it's a Jew and Gentile become one new man in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. And, and it's a beautiful thing. We have that identity, but when the church is raptured, taken out of the world, God will again turn to Israel, and he, they will be his vehicle of testimony to a needy, desperate world during that seven-year tribulation. But today, a partial hardening has happened to them, but uh, one day all of Israel will be saved in mass. Then he goes on to say that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Church has not replaced Israel. Church... The Gentile, basically, church age will come to an end, and then God will again turn to Israel uh, in a very uh, powerful, powerful way. But it will be a future. God's got a great future for Israel, but it will only be realized through a great time of tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, and Scripture described in the book of Revelation. And how will they be saved? I love Zechariah 12.10. It says, God will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that, so that what, Bob? He says, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over the loss of a firstborn. One day, all of Israel is going to turn to Christ. Right now, they're probably just a secular nation. There are many Hasidic Jews in there that really try to follow the law and be good Jews, but one day, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. In fact, he says, they'll mourn for me, and it's God speaking in that passage. You see, it's not heritage that saves, although heritage can be a wonderful thing, but it's repentance from sin and turning to the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, for redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. That's what saves, that's what delivers us from this present darkness, whether Jew or Gentile. They become one new man, a Christian in the church. The Gospel of John, as John read earlier in First. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, put it like this. It says, but as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, the authority to become the children of God. He says, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, heritage, wasn't who your papa was, nor of the will of the flesh, how hard you tried, nor of the will of man, but those who are born of God. You see, heritage is great, but it's not what saves us. Only the Savior can do that. That's why we call him Savior. 
<laughs> you know, have a profound sense of the obvious and your faith will have no problems. We call him Savior because he saves. He doesn't say anything else in the Bible saves. He says he saves you. That's the point. Christ is the Savior. Ultimately, heritage alone cannot guarantee eternal life. <clears throat> now, a second argument Paul brings up in the fail is the failure of the law to guarantee eternal life. Look at uh, verses 17 through 24. He says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, notice rely upon the law, trust in the law, and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you are you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light in, to those who are in darkness. It says, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. And here he's talking about mainly the Jewish relationship to the Gentiles because they didn't have the law, they didn't have the circumcision, they didn't have the proper heritage, they didn't have any of those things. And the Jew thought that was his prerogative if you had a Jewish proselyte. In fact, Jesus, God said that they should be a light to the nations throughout the Old Testament. Then he says, uh, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you teach not teach yourself? In other words, do you practice what you preach? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, though through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And he quotes a verse from Isaiah and various other places. <clears throat> now, the point of this passage is that with great privilege and great knowledge comes great responsibility. To him whom much is given, much is required, and that probably would include all of us. We've been given the Word of God. We, could, we can study it night and day if we like. We can meditate on it day and night like Psalms 1 says. We can have as much of God's Word, we can have much of God's law as we want. So with great privilege comes great responsibility, and with great knowledge comes great responsibility. And when we make great claims and great boasts about God and the truths of God, then not live what we say we live brings great dishonor to God. When we both corporately and individually fail to measure up, then it brings great dishonor to God and to Christ and the Word of God, and it gives our critics and our world occasion to blaspheme and to howl to the high heavens about the problems with Christians. That's the problem. It dishonors God, he says. And what's true for us as the church is and was also true for the nation of Israel. God had called them to be his light to the nations. They were given the law reason to boast in God. They, 
They knew his will. They knew what was pure and right, being instructed from his word. They were confident they were a light to the Gentiles who sat in darkness, guides to the spiritually blind, correctors of the foolish, teachers of the immature and the ignorant, referring again to the Gentiles, and having the full embodiment of knowledge and truth. Truly, the Jew was blessed more than any other nation on the face of the planet. God's, if you read through the Old Testament, particularly things like Deuteronomy 26, Leviticus 28, you're, it just boggles your mind what God would do for Israel if they would turn to him. I mean, it just, just blows your mind. You, if, if you were given those promises, it's even like Solomon was given these wonderful promises. God appeared to him twice. And he blessed him like no other man on the face of the planet has ever been blessed. And yet, at the end of his life, he goes after and worships false gods. He again turned back to Yahweh, but what a mess. Why would he do that? Why are we so sinful and wretched in our own minds and hearts that we would just kind of discount the, the blessing of God and go after what's false in this world? Horrible, horrible example, but it was true. And that was Israel. They were given promises like no other nation on the face of the planet has ever been given, and yet they could hardly live for God for one generation. Tragical. That was the problem. Throughout their history, they rarely lived these truths out. Before watching world, you know, read the book of Judges, read First and Second Kings, read First and Second Chronicles, read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, read Matthew 12, Matthew 23, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read all the prophets, and you get a picture of a people who just kind of discounted the blessing of God and said, we'll do our own thing. You know, America's kind of in that situation too. We talk about the founding fathers and their kind of a, had a real faith in God, and, and now we're turning from God, and what's going on? It's horrible to watch. It's just awful to watch. It's Romans 1 unfolding before our very eyes. But that was Israel throughout their history. And God, every time they would turn to him, would bless. One guy would put together a flight, a thousand enemies. <laughs> One guy. You know, it was just amazing. Uh, sometimes they would go into battle, like when Joshua was going into the, the promised land, they wouldn't even lose a man in the fight. You know, when you have swords and spears and all that stuff, that's incredible. Amazing thing. God blessed them like no other nation that has ever been blessed. But they discounted, they ignored that blessing and went their own way. No wonder, no wonder John the Baptist, as well as Jesus, came preaching a gospel of repentance from sin. John even calling out Israel's hypocritical leadership when he said, you brood of vipers. That's not a very good way to address your leadership. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bring fruit in keeping with, your, with repentance. They'd gotten so far off keel, they needed to repent and crawl on their knees and beg God for forgiveness. We're not far behind them. You see, orthodoxy, right doctrine, is one thing. 
That's hard enough to be theologically correct. Orthopraxy or right practice is absolutely impossible. Let me say that again. Orthopraxy, right practice, is absolutely impossible because we're sinners. That's why as God has called us to faithfulness, not perfection. You know, perfection was lost the moment you were conceived. You were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. That's just the way it is. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen people. That's why we need a Savior, not a list of do's and don'ts. We need redemption, not self-righteousness. Think about that. We all have that a self-righteous heart. Somehow we think we're earning God's favor by the way we live, and then when we mess up, we think we've lost God. That's, that's where a lot of bad theology comes in. When the reality of it is, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You are sealed for the day of redemption. Now live like it, right? Amen. Good, good. Show me you're awake. That's the point. We live redeemed, so let's, we are redeemed, so let's live like those who are redeemed. <clears throat> now, don't get me wrong on this. The law is wonderful. It's wonderful. Unkeepable, but wonderful. Romans 3.20 tells us that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No flesh will be justified Buy it. Paul tells us in Romans 7, 16 that the law is good, but the point is it doesn't save. It merely stresses and, and points out our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law on our behalf, Matthew 5, 17 says. James. Martin Luther didn't like James, but I like James, but James is great. He made the observation in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of the whole law. It's an awful statement, isn't it? Scary statement. You know, you may be doing good in one area, and then in this other area, you're sinning, and you're condemned. You know, how many times do you have to lie to be a liar? How many times do you have to steal something to uh, be a thief? How many times do you have to commit adultery in your mind to be an adulterer? How many times do you have to display anger and vengeance and wrath to be an angry, sinful person? You know, how many times? Well, one time, James says, just one. One time and you're imperfect because we can only have the perfection of God through Christ. He's the perfect one, not us. We, like I said, blew it when we were conceived. But Christ is the perfect one, and it's in Him that we have salvation. And that's Paul's point here. Do you practice what you preach perfectly? Do we do what we teach others, parents? <laughs> do we do what we tell our kids to do? You know, or do we display just do it because I told you so and that's it, and I'm not going to be an example of this, but if I'm angry and bitter and hateful and resentful, you know, don't you be that. Do we uh, steal? 
And I don't mean necessarily steal, but do we steal time? Do we rob God of what's rightfully due Him? Do we waste time and money on frivolous things? Do we erect idols in our lives? Do we worship the gods of beauty, brains, brawn, and bankroll? Anybody want to write that down? Beauty, brains, what did I say? Beauty, beauty, brains, brawn, and bankroll. Those are pretty hard to resist, aren't they? They're idols in our society. Do we commit adultery, if not with our bodies, with our minds and hearts? Have you ever broken one of the... How many have broken one of the Ten Commandments? Now, I don't mean to discourage you, but there are literally hundreds of commands in the Old and New Testament. You know, in the book of Ephesians, there's 40 imperatives or commands alone. There's 20 to 30 in the book of Colossians. There's there's like 20 alone in 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I broke that this morning. <laughs> that one in particular, I wasn't real happy about something and uh, displayed that and, uh, you know, repented immediately. But, you know, I'm a sinner. And uh, it's impossible to keep the law. It's just impossible. It's, it's just like the worst nightmare in the world. There's no way in the world to keep it. You see, the law doesn't save, and although it's good and given by the finger of God, it merely points out our sin and our inability to keep it. Therefore, Galatians 3.24 tells us the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Faith in who? Well, faith in Christ. Christ is the just one. He's the one who we have to satisfy. But he's also, Paul will tell us in, in Romans 3, the justifier of those who have faith in him. He's just, that has to be satisfied, but he justified us on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. But the law simply goes, you are just like the worst sinner imaginable. Look at this. And it's like neon lights just flashing in your eyes. And uh, all of a sudden you go, okay, I've had enough of that. Uh, what can I do about it? Well, you can do nothing except come to faith in Christ, period. That's it. The only sin that can't be forgiven is the sin of unbelief. In Matthew chapter 12. So we see the law fails to save, but it doesn't feel rightfully understood to lead us to the one who does save. And that's the whole point of the law. It's not something that, you know, I got 20 lists of do's and don'ts and I do those all that day and, man, I feel good about myself. And th that's not a bad thing. Law's good. Keep the law. But don't think it's going to save you in the end. Christ is the only one who can save you, not law. Now, third, a third area that fails to bring eternal life is ritual. In this case, the rite of circumcision. Look at verses 25 through 27. It says, For indeed, circumcision, which is part of the law, is of value if you practice the law, the whole law, not just the fact that you were circumcised as an eight-day-old, as a male. But if... You are a transgressor of the law. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, it's worthless. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, 
will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Hmm. Now, the point here is that ritual is good if the reality of the ritual is present and practiced. In other words, having the sign of circumcision is of value if a man walks with God and faithfully keeps his word. Otherwise, it's a useless rite. It's like pointing to the fact, oh, I was baptized as a baby. Well, so what? What'd that do for you? Did you know you even, you know, if nobody told you about it, you wouldn't even know what happened. You can't remember back that far, at least I can't. <coughs> the circumcision is of value if the law of God is practiced. Otherwise, it's a worthless ritual. It alone will not obtain for you eternal life. And the larger point is neither the law nor the ritual will do that, nor the heritage if you're a Jew. That's what Paul's saying. He's, he's already shown the Gentiles are hopeless. And now he's showing the Jews are hopeless for eternal life without the Savior. In fact, Paul says in verse 27 that the Gentile, the heathen, who does not have the right of circumcision but keeps the law of God, think of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 to whom Peter was sent, will judge the Jew who has the heritage the law and the ritual, but fails to faithfully keep the law. Orthopraxy must match orthodoxy. Otherwise, verse 24 says, the name of God is blasphemed. And when they see chinks in our armor, the critics just howl to high heaven, don't they? And that's why it was so devastating in, uh, I think it was the 70s or 80s, that uh, you know guys like Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and all the televangelists, you know, were such cretins. You know, that brought reproach on all of us, unfortunately, because it gave the critics opportunity to howl and criticize and, and think all Christians, throw them all into the same basket and condemn them. But unfortunately, that's the way it works in this world. But the larger point Paul is making is that neither heritage nor law nor the right of circumcision saves anyone, and the best it can do is make you look good when you compare yourselves to others, when we compare ourselves to ourselves, because that's what do-gooder religion is all about, isn't it? Well, I'm better than that guy, so I've got a better chance of uh, making it when I stand before God because, because I'm not like that drunk next door or that womanizer over there, that woman that's out cheating on her husband, well, I, I'm way better than them. I, you know, I, I go to church, and I uh, uh, do whatever. I even once in a while give an offering. And, uh, hey, you know, I celebrate Christmas and Easter. In fact, those are the only two times I do go to church. But, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm better than most, right? You know, better than most doesn't cut it just does not cut it because it doesn't matter if you're, what your heritage is, what, how much of the law you keep, or uh, what rights you can claim. None of them save. That's what Paul's point is here. Larger point is 
he's making is that none of these things saves. You see, the Jew who outwardly has the heritage, the law, and the circumcision looks good in the eyes of his fellow man and fellow Jews, as does Cornelius, an uncircumcised Gentile who kept the law and gave alms to the Jewish people. But you know what? In Acts chapter 10, who had to go to Cornelius? Peter. Peter had to go to Cornelius and give him the gospel so that he could be saved. Otherwise, he would have went to hell. You understand that? He had to be saved. He had to come to Christ as Savior because Christ is the only Savior. That's the whole point. All pathways do not lead to God. Only one. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We have to get that embedded in our mind. Uh, That sounds a little intolerant in our day and age because... Anything from who knows what to who knows what is going to heaven, right? Because they think they are. But that's not what the Scripture says. And if we believe the Scriptures to be true, then we have to believe what the Scripture says about truth. And that's the point Paul is making. Not even in the Old Testament were people saved by their ritual. But Cornelius, as well as the Jew, needed to hear the gospel, and be saved by Jesus Christ because he is the Savior. Everything but Jesus fails to save, and that's Paul's main point here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, listen carefully to how he ends this argumentation. Look at verses 28 and 29. It says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, And he's talking about the condition of the heart here. He's not saying, you know, a national Jew is a Jew. Okay, Jewish people are Jewish people. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that that all of a sudden all the Gentiles are, are Jews too. No, he's not saying that. He's saying a real Jew is one who is circumcised in his heart. It's not an outward, uh, just a sign of the flesh. But he is a Jew, verse 29, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. You know, even Abraham, the father of us all, literally because he was an uncircumcised heathen and then he was a circumcised Jew, and he became the father in the line of the Savior. He says, uh, it, he, in, in Genesis 15, 6, he says, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Even Abraham was saved by faith, not by ritual, not by heritage, not by keeping the law. In fact, the law wasn't given until Moses. So he says, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. You know, I always laugh. I don't laugh because it's not funny, but when people go through a hard time in their marriage, they get real religious for a couple months. Why? because they think they're going to get from God what they want because of being spiritual or something. But see, we're talking about life here. We're talking about birth here. We're talking about a life that is real and connected and faithful and true to the Lord God Almighty, to the Savior Jesus Christ. We're not just talking about... a. I remember counseling one gal, and she goes, 
I was describing to her what a Christian woman is, and she goes, how long do I got to do that? It was like, I just kind of shook my head, and it was like, huh? <laughs> I mean, it was like getting woken out of a stupor. And what she meant was, how long do I got to do that before my marriage gets back to normal and he's doing what I want him to do? They divorced later on, as you can guess. But it's of the heart, isn't it? This praise comes from God, not men. We're not trying to please each other. We're not trying to please men. We're in the process of pleasing God as we keep his word. You see, true righteousness is not a heritage issue. It's not a deal of who's your daddy. It's not merely an issue of practice. Good works and righteous living are important, but that alone will not save you. And it's not merely a matter of ritual. No matter how important and how great that ritual is, such as communion or baptism, both wonderful rituals that we carry out in the church. It's a matter of the heart. Being properly related to God in Christ, and that's true for the Jew as well as the Gentile, salvation comes by the work of the Holy Spirit, not by the letter of the law, and our goal is not to gain the praise of men but to obtain the praise of God through the glorious work of his son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps the Apostle Paul said it best, and I'll close with this passage. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> I'd like you all to turn there if you have your Bibles or electronic devices. I kind of reconciled myself to that. Philippians 3 is one of the most amazing set of verses you'll find in the Scripture because it talks about a man's life who excelled in both areas, both heritage, law, circumcision, and then ultimately with Christ. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, verse 1. Write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. He uses the word mutilation here. Beware of religiosity, beware of uh, a ritualized religion that does not save. And he says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then Paul, you could say he's tooting his own horn, but really he isn't. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Listen to what he says. Circumcised the eighth day. He had the sign of the circumcision. Of the nation of Israel, he had the right heritage. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew sired by Jews. As the law of Pharisee, the strictest sect in the Jewish religion. He says, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, he murdered Christians. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, at least in his own mind. But, love that but there. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Oh, poor Paul. Poor Paul. Gave up all that respect and adulation of men. They'd look at him and go, oh, you were sired by Hebrews. You're of the nation of Israel. You're of the tribe of Benjamin, the one tribe that didn't defect when Rehoboam took over. And on and on it goes. Circumcised the eighth day as prescribed in the law. And, and uh, poor Paul, you gave all that up. But then he says, and I count them but rubbish for the sake that I may gain Christ. You know, he uses the word for dung there. He says, all that stuff was a big pile of manure in the presence of God. It just stank. Then he says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, although he could have claimed that. He did claim it in verse 6. And he says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, on that final day of judgment, the only righteousness you're going to want is to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Theologically, that's called imputation. That means that Christ's righteousness was given to us. Our sin was accounted to his account, and it was canceled out because of his perfection. Imperfect people dying to make other people perfect are still imperfect. The perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world died in perfection therefore canceling out the imperfection of our sin. Then he, I love this. This is after written about 30-some 30, 30 years after Paul really be, came to Christ on the road to Damascus. And he says, that I may know him. I love that. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. You know, we sang that all the song about giving it all to Christ. This is what it entails. Knowing Christ, trusting in the power of his resurrection, experiencing that through our lives, experiencing the sufferings of Christ that will come about because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then he says, uh, and be conformed to his death. You know, at the end of his life, Paul would say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and to all who have loved his appearing. And, you know, I just challenge you, do you live in light of the Lord's soon return? Do you live in light of his first coming and his second coming? Then he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is that but eternal life? How do we attain to eternal life? Through the Savior, the one who saves us from our sin and saves us for all eternity. That's why we believe in once saved, always saved. You know, that kind of says it all. 
So to sum up, heritage, it's good. Law, it's wonderful. Ritual, it can be meaningful. But only the Savior, Jesus Christ, can save us from our sins and give us the free gift of eternal life. Eternal life does not come through the heritage, the law, the ritual, but only through Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel, knowing and loving Christ alone. I think of the cry of the Reformation was that salvation was by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we need nothing more than Christ. And then to live the rest of our lives for him, just saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me, a wretched, sinful, wretched person like me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you, Lord, it's not by works, it's not by the acts of the flesh, it's not by who's our daddy, but Lord, it's simply by justification, by faith in you. Thank you that we were justified at the cross as you offered the perfect sacrifice for sin, that you shed your blood on our behalf. And Lord, three days later, you conquered sin and death by rising from the grave and showing your power and your claim to be the Savior. And Lord, I just pray that we would believe in you as such. And Lord, that we might not live our lives trying to earn your favor, but Lord, live them abandoned to you because we have your favor. Thank you that salvation is a free gift of God. And Lord, uh, we don't discount the law. We don't discount righteousness. We don't discount, shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. But Lord, we don't trust in those things for eternal life. We trust in you. And we love you. And we praise you and thank you for being our Savior. There is no other Savior in this universe but you. And thank you that you have claimed us as your own. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.